as a PM, I'm finding myself much more involved and focusing on the discovery part than the delivery part. So we trust the engineer, we trust the process to get the product out once it's in the engineer's hands. PMs has much more contribution and value to bring to the, to the discovery. Let me be honest with you, measuring the light is not easy. How can we distinguish between highly satisfied and delight. There's a there's a small difference. We do have metrics that help us to identify like the usage, the activation, the retention, the engagement, etc. But the best way to identify delight is to talk to the user, sit with them. Welcome to Product with Banash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Super excited to talk to Nesreen today about her experience. Basically, Nesreen has had an amazing career moving from Microsoft to Spotify. Now she's working at Google. Hi, I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time to do this. We're very excited to, to be having you on the show. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about you? What have you been doing? What are you currently doing at Google? Sure. My name is Nesreen. I'm currently a product manager at Google. I'm working specifically on the Google Meet product, the video conference product by Google, and I'm based in Stockholm. So my background is mostly tech. So I got my electrical engineering degree back in 2008. And then I got myself even deeper in tech. I did an industrial PhD at the Alcatel Lucent Bell Labs in Paris. I was mainly working on signal processing and broadcasting systems. And then at some point, I wanted really to explore the other side of the research. When I was doing research for five years, I realized that research is mostly focusing on the innovation part and much less on the productization and the user aspect. So I moved from research to a PM career. So I also moved into Stockholm. I started my PM career with Microsoft. So I was working at Skype, enabling group video calls and enabling Skype on many new devices with internal and external partners. And then after four years, I wanted to experience like a, a real Swedish ways of working. So I moved from <laughs> Microsoft to Spotify okay. with the same like area of expertise media. So for three years, I've been the PM of the media user experience at Spotify and worked on enabling Spotify on, for all users and more users. So worked on the growth part of Spotify by enabling Spotify for low-end devices, but also users who really wanted to have high five and super, super high quality. And after four years like at, at Spotify and with the pandemic, the use of video conference tool exploded. And I realized that there is a need, of course, to get back to the video conference environment. So I, uh, I joined Google seven months ago and I'm working on making Google Meet a fun and delightful experience while maintaining the safety and making it a comfortable product to use. Brilliant. That's super Amazing. exciting. I guess we have a lot of, of, of things to learn from you during this show. So we've got about an hour together and we'll get into the the, the nitty gritty of, of all this this stuff, particularly uh, discovery and, and how you've been practicing over the years in these different companies. But first thing first, let me ask you, so Google is this big organization, right? So, so many yeah. people work at Google and tell us a little bit about what your role is specifically, the kind of product you, you, you're working on. You yes. already mentioned Google Meet. So tell us a little bit about your context, the circumstances in which you work. 
Yeah, sure. So I joined Google again, as I said, like seven months ago. And my main area of, of, of focus, of course, is how do we make meetings using Meet a fun and, and a pleasant experience? So we don't want Meet to be just a tool to be used to connect with your users, but we want also Meet to be a tool where users are having fun and they in a pleasant experience. So we're working on features like, for example, enabling background, replace background blur. We're also adding some effects so that people can interact with nonverbal communication during meetings. So it's all about, of course, maintaining engagement and communication, but also in a pleasant and fun way. Mm-hmm. And like as soon as I joined Google, the first month has been all about onboarding, of course. So I've got introduced to the culture, to the company values, to the process. And, and one thing that I get very highly introduced to is the concept of Googliness. So Googliness is this ways of working, this, this culture aspect where people work together in a great way. And each Google office is actually characterized by its distinctive a flavor of googliness. And the Stockholm office is definitely uh, characterized by a great culture and high level of creativity, engagement, interaction, as it has been like the birthplace of uh, technologies such as WebRTC, Google Duo, and now we're working heavily on Google Meet. So it's uh, definitely really fun to be here. So all of this has happened in the Stockholm office over the years, right? So does Stockholm have uh, a particularity working of this on this kind of technology or how uh, how does that necessarily how, how does that work so Stockholm is characterized by being like the media city. It's been the ah, birthplace okay. of different products. So that's why you see a lot of uh, high big tech, of course, in Stockholm. And actually, it's a very attractive place as well for the tech and the media specific expertise. Brilliant. So then over to you. I think you had a question for, for Nasreen. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that you've joined uh, Google Meet in the midst of a worldwide uh, pandemic. And I, I'm just curious, how did that happen? Yeah, so in 2017, after four years or a bit more than four years in real-time communication at Skype, I thought that we had reached a point in which the video conferencing tech was good enough. So now with the pandemic, we have all realized how much there is more, much more need to communicate efficiently in a different context, of course. Suddenly, like uh, local yoga classes became online and elementary school need to transform the online classes and even businesses realize that there is a big opportunity to use online collaboration tools. So that has been, of course, an initiator for a new standard, a standard for usability. So now six years child need to be able to use video conferencing tool. Functionality standard, like playing music on like a sport classes is need, need to happen as well. And of course, a quality standard is new because now video calls are not only happening in a super high network condition and with the great hardware, but non-professional hardware and network device are now part of the game. Hmm. So at that, so that's why like, I thought I can still help in this community to bring collaboration tool into a new, new level. Yeah, such an exciting challenge for you to join this team. And I'm curious to know when you joined first Google, because you, you were working previously in other leading tech companies, what, what were the things that surprised you? I think many aspects has been surprising, but I would like to address three of them. When I was preparing for the interviews, I learned a lot about the Googliness aspect and what does Googliness mean, and I tried to prepare for that. But as soon as I entered 
entered Google, I realized that Googliness is is real. I learned that immediately from the onboarding process. So for example, being Googly, as we say internally, is doing the right thing, being friendly, being approachable, valuing the user and the colleague, being transparent, being fair. I mean, these things seem obvious, but they, they are not necessarily very well valued in all companies and big companies too. So in addition of being smart, the large majority of Googlers I've met so far are incredibly nice and helpful. And it worked working here a joy. And I'm going to tell you something concrete, honestly, like despite the remote setup, I mean, since I started, everything has been remote. I was surprised by the depth of the connection I've been establishing with my team and the other colleagues so far. It's a it's, it's probably the fact that we see each other's houses and family, and that's why we get immediately into talking about personal things. But this is, mm-hmm. this is something that honestly like, surprised me a lot. The second aspect is, of course, the user obsessions. So at Google, we are constantly thinking about the user. We build for them. We first think about the user and then think about the viability and the monetization of the product later on. So we focus on the user and then we believe that everything else will follow. And that's, of course, like reminded at every step of, of the work and every day on almost every, all emails, etc. So there is an obsession about user. We do a lot of UXR. And uh, the other thing that Google is carrying mostly about is being simple and being accessible for everyone. And that's, of course, within the same mindset, same mindset of being user obsessed. The third surprising aspect is, of course, the data obsession. (laughs) So data beats opinion. And as soon as I joined Google, I learned about the hypo concept. So not as a principle to apply, but rather as a principle to avoid. So hypo means highest pet opinion, like person's opinion. So not the highest bad opinion, person's opinions matter most or the, the highest level in leadership matter most. But instead, the one with, with the best arguments will, uh, will, win the, will win the discussion. So we let the data decide and decisions at Google are always data driven. And that's usually based on numerical evidence. And how did that impact the way you're doing product management and product discovery, for instance, in your day-to-day work? Did we lose? Did we lose the screen? We should have Let's done the call. I'm oh, sorry. I think I lost you for a minute. So <laughs> yeah, you're back now. We can hear you. Please. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering all those aspects that surprised you and customer obsession and data focused aspects, how that does all these things impact where you're doing product management and maybe also product discovery in your day-to-day work at Google? Yes, sure. So the, the user obsession part is, as I said, like part of all process and including the ideation of first. When we are considering new ideas, it's very important that to take that the user's challenge into, into account. So we usually focus more into the user problem rather than the solution stage. So we observe what the users are concerned about. We collect feature requests. We look at the social media, et cetera. So being very close to the user 
and also categorize them into archetypes is extremely important so that we try to put ourselves into the user shoes as often as possible. So usually the ideation happen within different users. The numerical aspect or the data aspect is also surprisingly part of the ideation. So before starting an idea, we look at how what's the behavior? What are users using today? What do they re- how do they use the current product today and what could be improved to make their their life faster or easier and that continues throughout the entire process so even if we we start launching a product we look at data very often we adjust we iterate and and data plays a big big role into the entire process oh. that's su- that's super that's super interesting. I guess one of the questions I had was, we just talked about this pandemic and how it has changed so many things for people across the world, right? Yeah. How do you think the pandemic affected the product roadmap at Google Meet? Yeah. So actually in 2020, as video calling became the norm in the video calling, so the the, the, the pandemic hit the year, so in 2020, and Google Duo and Google Meet hosted over 1 trillion minutes of video calls. That's like equal to more than 18 billion hours long of of video calls. And of course, with this increase, Google had to adapt the Meet product. The first aspect of adapting Google Meet was, of course, to open it up to one for free. So first, enlarge our user user base for for the consumer. And then the second aspect was to adapt the product to the work environment. So Meet is not only used in in meeting rooms or in in work environment, but rather in houses. So we launched many features like the noise cancellation. So if you have a dog barking or a child running around, these noise can be removed automatically by by, by Meet. The other features has been like background blur, background, custom background. These are also launched to protect your privacy so that if you are in a small studio and you want to protect your privacy, it's always uh, do that. Light mode, like low light mode is also a feature that has been introduced. So now that you're in in your place and you don't necessarily have the light needed for that, so low light mode has been introduced for this kind of needs. It's uh, It also gave user live caption. So now live caption mm-hmm. is also in five languages, which is pretty useful, of course, for those watching webinars and joining pretty long meetings. One of my favorite features, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Great. That, that helped everyone follow what's going on in, in an easy way, of course. That's, that sounds really interesting. And talking about COVID, right? Like we were saying, obviously there was the pandemic and I feel like there was this really great boom of online collaboration tools. So there's this whole suite and, and, and myriad of tools that we use now, right? Because a lot of us are working remotely as flexible working becomes more and more standardized and, and in the habits of people, you see more and more of these online collaboration tools spring up. What are some of the behaviors you, you've observed apart from this growing user base of people yeah. using Google Meet? What are some of the, the behaviors you've seen in, in the, the user base of, of Google Meet? Sure. 
Of course, growth is an important part, but more importantly, what did change a lot for us is the diversity of our users. So we're not only focusing on enterprise and education part only. Our users are not co-workers and students anymore, but we have children using Meet. We have grandparents using Meet, trainers using Meet. And these are coming to the product with a new ways of you, like using the product. And also they have different requirements, they have different usage, they have different preferences and constraints as well. So like by opening for everyone, we enlarge it, as I said, like our user archetype. And now when we are launching a new product or a new feature, we want to make sure that that feature fit all the archetypes that we are trying to focus on. So all the personas has to be addressed separately to make sure that they will like the product, they will use it in an accessible, inclusive way. So I would say this is one of the aspects that Google Meet is focusing on, is to make sure that it's accessible for everyone equally. Hmm. And, and does it mean that when you maybe prioritize a new feature, you one of the criteria could be that it can be enjoyed by all those different types of, of people using the product? I mean, not necessarily. Some features are more designed for an archetype less than another because we see there is a need for it. Of course, we would like to make sure that the feature is inclusive for everyone, but sometimes some feature will not be needed by children or will not be used by, by another type of, of user. So it's not always the case that we need to make sure that the feature is going to be used by everyone, but it needs to be targeted toward the right archetype. Do you feel stuck, not knowing how to tackle a problem, or you're looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use in your role as a product person. Companies like Atlassian, Content Square, and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching to their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, Head to panache.io to get an idea of how we can help you level up today. Check out panache.io. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O. Right. And I'm talking about new features. Are there any exciting new features you can tell us about? Coming. Yeah, so sure. One thing we're super happy about is, of course, the webcam brightness adjustment. So the feature, so the, the idea is that easier for you to see all of your coworkers and friends properly on the video calls. So the web version of the app can detect when someone is underexposed due to bad lighting, for example. And then Meet will, will, will try to help increase the brightness to make it easy for your colleague, your friend to see you and hopefully also for you have a better 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 video feed i have been using it for quite some time and actually stopped using my ring light since since then so it's, it's very nice feature we are enjoying at google the other feature i would uh, i can talk about is the uh, is a is a new mode that is called companion mode. So as I so Google tried to adapt the feature to the environment and to the condition. And now as millions of enterprise emerge from one more than one year of fully remote work, the hybrid mode or the hybrid work mode is becoming the normal standard, right? Right. So companion mode is actually a mode that will allow users to host and join meeting from a conference room with their laptop and let them leverage the in-room audio and video capability 
accessibility without audio feedback. What I mean by that, like audio companion mode will allow participants to enjoy all the meet features like the hand raise, chat, share screen, but without having the audio loop. You will continue having the audio loop from the, from the meeting room. So these are like uh, just to highlight how we try to adapt our feature to the to the to the current state. And now since the hybrid mode is becoming like the top priority, that influence of course our our priorities and roadmap. That's really interesting. And of course, we all enjoy these uh, live backgrounds. I, I like the one with the little people having a party in the background. So thanks. <laughs> thanks a lot for developing these. They, they, bring, they bring some positive energy to, to our meetings. And yeah, talking about energy and meetings. So I recently read about this thing, this phenomenon that people observed over time, especially during the pandemic, which is called Zoom yes. fatigue. So I read about this on HBR and I think it's really interesting that we're spending all this time on, on you know, video conference calls and it, it might have some impact into our psychological lives, right, or, or, or state. So can you tell us a little bit about Zoom fatigue and then how is Google planning to typically address this kind of challenge, especially as more people are going on remote, you know, live calls, like you're saying that there's the hybrid work is, is, is becoming the standard. More and more people are working from their homes and talking to people that are in the office. So how's that, how's Google working on that theme? Yes. So the article you're referring to is definitely an article I, I read maybe four or five times. I mean, it's a very interesting one and we have been talking about it many times as well. And because it's also an issue that we try to solve. So of course, people are using online tool much more often than before. And that trigger fatigue, that trigger people to be exhausted at the end of the day. So we have been thinking about what could cause that? How can we eliminate that? Or how can we reduce that video fatigue? And from the article, one, one reason for the video fatigue is, of course, seeing yourself during the video chat. So the fact that you see yourself is very energy draining and fatiguing. So imagine yourself in a meeting room and someone is holding like a mirror in front of you and you're seeing yourself constantly. I mean, our brain is automatically trained to, to watch our images. So if you cross in front of the, of let's say, even like a glass or whatever, you will automatically see yourself. And even if you imagine yourself watching a family album, photo album, you will always look at yourself. I mean, this is something that we always experience. So that's why by having your self-view and your feed, that's very, very fatiguing by the end of the day because your eyes will always look at that self-view. So one introduction we did recently, of course, is giving the ability to remove the self-view. So user can go and remove that self-view and you still can, of course, send your feed, but you don't necessarily have to see yourself. Of course, if you want to get back to that, you can enable it again. That, of course, help at least reduce the, the, the video fatigue, at least one aspect of it. And one other reason is the cognitive load is much, much higher in the video chat compared to, of course, meeting rooms. We are trying to focus on that aspect and we're looking for a solution. And one idea that my team is working on is, of course, adding some consumer effect or what we call masks. So these, of course, just to bring some fun into the meeting. And uh, we would like to make sure that the users are, uh, are not necessarily always within the same appearance, but if they want to celebrate with 
having like a mask or a hat or any accessories that you want to add, those are already available in Google Meet on mobile. So the idea is how do we make the, the meeting not only a place to meet and talk with your colleague, but also to share, to celebrate and, and to, to have fun all together, just to remove that aspect of the video fatigue. <laughs> Thanks for that. that. That was super interesting. So we, we're talking about these new things you guys are working on right now. I guess that's a, seg- a really good segue into my next question. So how do you guys develop these, these products? What's the typical product development workflow at, at Google for this kind of stuff? Yeah, sure. I think we always, of course, start with exploration. We do the exploration exercise by examining the problem and get deeper into the problem, try to fall in love with the problem. And then from that exploration, we usually get with a list of ideas. The more idea you have, the better. So because many of them will be thrown away. These ideas will be, of course, triaged and some of them will go into prototyping. And those prototypes will be shared with user testing, etc. So we, we do a lot of internal testing. So we release stuff before we release stuff to public. We do internal testing with what we call dog food. So dog food is showing our crazy new features to the Googlers. And Googlers are highly opinionated people, of course. So let's just say that you get a lot of strongly worded feedback from that. Yeah, I'm sure. And of course, <laughs> yeah. So launch then, we, we rather prefer launching early and iterate based on real-world feedback. What I said sounds nothing new, I guess. And, and, and to be honest with you, everything which fit into predefined process are straight into like a straight line should not be ambitious enough. So the reality is that it's not very much like I presented earlier. So the reality is that we have much more iteration into our process. So our process does not look like a straight line, but rather like a a repetitive loop. So we start an idea, we get back to the original state, we change, we validate hypothesis, we look at the data. So I I think from all the features that has been at Google, no one really followed the same process as the other. Like feature has been through a different journey individually. So yes, the real process is not like a straight line, but we do it completely into iteration and 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 continuous loop, as I said. And that sounds like a like a chaos sometimes. But my role is not to eliminate the chaos. The chaos is part of the process, and that's how we innovate, and that's how we bring new ideas that the users love. But rather to manage that process, how do we make sure that? It's still that we still have the end target, which is the user satisfaction and get the product out. And how long does this kind of loop typically last? I mean, sometimes that should that could be a quite long process. So PMs at Google need to be very patient. And there is a good reason for that. So we do, since the product is hitting millions of users and people from all over the world globally will, will use our product, we want to make sure that the product is inclusive, is accessible. So there is a lot of process that a product launch go through. And, and this is, of course, make the lifetime of the launch longer than anywhere else. But it's, it's always for the, for the purpose of making the user happy and satisfied about what we are launching. Hmm. And and how how do you in your day-to-day work balance your work between delivery and and discovery. Yes. So usually when we start, we don't know what's essential. As I said, like it's an exploration. So it's quite typical that once you put the product in users' hand, then they start using it and you see that they're using it in an unexpected way 
or they uh, for an unexpected use cases. And these are, of course, very interesting use cases because that, those define the direction of the product. So uh, uh, so we need to make sure that when we start with an idea, we, we, we should be very comfortable with the idea of throwing it away or not come, like uh, it's it's very important not to fall in love with the with the idea or the solution but rather not, always not, keep don't, focus. not get too attached to to yeah to, yes. to, to the execution yes. the solution yeah exactly and at google we have the best brainstorming culture so uh, for example we set a very diverse team and we let we go wild to see how how the how the user the, the product is used by our end users we defined different personas or what we call archetype in order to make sure that the product fits most of them or what are the use cases that does not fit and then we need to adjust for and of course we do heavy and a lot of user study and research to make sure that we, we understand the user, we understand the problem and the challenge that they're living with. And once we narrow down the idea, of course, we want to start with making them tangible. So most of the time we start with paper mocks. So what sounds like a kindergarten exercise is actually extremely valuable to validate idea and to reduce waste. We actually show those mocks to the end user and we get their feedback as early as possible. So it's very important that we get those feedback in the early stage. And of course, as a result, we minimize the waste of the development and we get early feedback on what should we focus on, what should we test. So now it's time, of course, for writing code. So once we do this exploration, we do this user testing with very, very basic mocks, we, we start prototyping. And actually, prototype, it's very important to know that prototype is not the final code. It's not the final product, but it should represent the final product. It should represent the experience of the, of the final product. So it, let's say a prototype should feel like the actual like the actual end product, but for example, it should not be scalable, it should not run on a production system or environment, and it should not be fully tested, for example. Oftentimes, the code for the prototype is thrown away. I mean, this is something that usually happens a lot, but it, it's a very good tool to validate the learning. And once we start the prototype and we uh, we start the real code, we have we go through the the launch process that I mentioned earlier. So we have what we call fish food. Those are like the team level of testing. So only the the the, the team level testing the product. Then the dog food. And that's the right. Google-wide testing environment. And once we get the feedback and we validate the behavior and we validate the, 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 the hypothesis, we go wild. And something I want to, to highlight here is that we care much more about the landing than the launching. So launching oh. is not the end of the process. Launching is the beginning of monitoring data, of monitoring the user behavior, and also the beginning of other iteration. So landing is very important, and we track landing by looking at stats and metrics, and that's part of the Google culture as well. And, and just to understand, because what you describe as the first kind of brainstorming with uh, lots of exploration and mm -hmm. new ideas and innovation, this seems like a very uh, innovative part. Is it 
like at some part of your product management also is it after like at the beginning of a quarter when you've decided when you've decided on a new company objective or how do you balance that kind of brainstorming with the the part where for instance after launching a new feature you need to still maybe do discovery on that and also yeah. with your other discovery activities like that that would be more evaluative to understand the prototypes like how yeah how do you break your time uh, in all these activities this is a great question because i think it depends like every pm has his own ways of working when it comes to balancing ideation versus delivery and for me what works best and i found myself very comfortable with that is to have two separate roadmap so one roadmap will be for the discovery part and the other roadmap will be with the delivery part and they should not be competing with each other as a pm i'm finding myself much more involved and focusing on the, the, the discovery part than the delivery part so we trust the engineer we trust the process to get the product out once it's in the engineer's hands pms has much more contribution and value to bring to the to the discovery and and ideas can come at any time you don't have to wait for the beginning of the year to create your roadmap for discovery so uh, sometimes oftentimes just in the middle of the quarter there is a need there is an idea that sounds to be a genius and great for the for the context that will immediately be added into the discovery roadmap i discussed it with my like user researcher we evaluate the, the value and the opportunity so the, so yes the delivery is is structured in, in terms of okrs and, and, and quarter planning etc but the discovery it's much less strict when it comes to to planning we always have the opportunity to, to explore new idea without waiting for a process or for the quarter planning right and is there somewhere where those two roadmaps kind of meet or how do you yes Yeah, of course. Once we validate the idea and once we validate that there is a big opportunity from the discovery phase, then the discovery roadmap will lead into the delivery. So not everything in the discovery will feed or will go to the de delivery part. Of course, many of them will just vanish, will disappear. But the most successful and the ones that we believe will bring value to the end user will be just the entry point for the delivery part. So the delivery part is usually the roadmap that gets feed from the discovery or of course from other feature requests that we have internally as well. Right, makes sense. Thanks for that. That was particularly insightful. And I guess you you started talking about this, right? You started talking about um, some of the ways you have to think about building products in a way that they are inclusive and they take into account, you know, the, the differences between people and things like that. And earlier in our conversation, you also talked about how now video conferencing is for everyone. So you have to cater for, for people that have low bandwidth and maybe their devices and not the most modern devices on the market, right? So what are some of the challenges you face when you're developing products for millions of users every day? I think I read somewhere that Google Meet has about a hundred million users, or something like that, or probably even more. How how do you how do you manage like building this product for like such a wide variety of personas? Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. This is definitely something that the PM have to address as one of the daily challenge, of course, but it's also exciting because you realize that your product is hitting millions of users, of course, and globally. And it's always interesting to look and go and talk to the users, see how they're using it and get surprised. I always love the aspect of getting surprised by talking to the user and, oh, really, this is how you, this is your, how you use the product, etc. But the one thing that Google is extremely serious about and I totally approve is of course as I said I mentioned earlier the importance of being accessible and inclusive I mean these are honestly not just words they are even part of the process and being global being a company and a product that is available for so many users make the process of course a bit longer to to go through so every feature we we ship or we even intend to ship have to go through a strict accessibility tests so we try to test most of the angles and the accessibility challenge and capability that our user may encounter and of course with the big user catalog i mean the more user you have the more accessibility capability challenge you have in your list so we need to make sure that our product is comfortably usable by all our users i have i've been only 7 months at google and every feature i have been involved into has to go through a lot of discussion regarding accessibility and how our user may feel just the feeling yeah. about that feature. Really interesting. And I, I want to go back to what you said earlier about your mission at Google being to make Google Meet fun and delightful. I'm curious to know how do you, how does that concretely translate into your your daily work, and also how do you measure that you actually achieve your goal? How does that work? Of course. So when developing Google Meet, we make sure that it's very high performance and it works on all devices, most network, etc. But one aspect that is extremely important when developing a new feature is or like maintaining a good product health is, is to make sure that the product is delightful and pleasant to be used by our end users. So we want our user, as I said earlier, to be not be just a solution for meeting your your coworkers, colleague, etc., but it should be a place for sharing emotion and having fun all together. So study call this emotional connections. What does con emotional connection means is the process of forming like a relationship between an end user and the product by provoking their emotions. So research also shows that fully connected user enjoy the product more. They recommend it more. They provide feedback and interact with the company more. And of course, what we want to achieve. And designing for delight is all about establishing an emotional connection with our end user and remind them that there are human, real human behind the design. We care about triggering their emotions at every step of the product. So, and the emotions that we want to trigger are definitely joy and relaxation, inclusion, surprise. I mean, these are the things that we want to, 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 to trigger. I want to highlight something here is that there is a study published in 1980, I think, by a psychologist called Plutchik. He actually provided some foundational work in the psychology by identifying eight core emotions. So Plutchik conceptualized delight as the combination of surprise and joy. 
So for right. reference, for example, love will be the combination of joy and acceptance. Disappointment will be the combination of sadness as well. Oh. So our challenge, me as a PM here, in the delight and, and, and fun aspect, is to continuously keep triggering joy and surprise among our users. So how do we define, how do we create surprise? So we have been activating surprise at Meet by working on a diversity of feature, a diversity of content, and by surfing on event. So let me elaborate a bit more. So the diversity features, imagine, so as I said, a couple of months ago, we launched background blur. Then we added the background change with a static image. Very recently, we added also video background. So we always try to make sure that there is something innovative that user will, will, will uh, that will trigger the user and will surprise them. And then the diversity of content, because it's not only one video background or only one static background that you find in the catalog, but we keep updating them and make it fresh by providing new assets and new images and video. And then the last aspect is surfing on events. So we recently launched effects and background for the Olympic game when it was the Olympic period. We also launched effect for, for Easter, for Ramadan, for Earth Day. So we use the seasonal uh, timing in order to, to trigger the surprise and the joy for our user who may feel included by these kind of features, of course. But let me be honest with you, measuring the light is not easy. It's definitely hard because how can we distinguish between highly satisfied and delight? There's a, there's a small difference, of course. And we do have metric, of course, that help us to identify like the usage, the activation, the retention, the engagement, etc. But the best way to identify delight is to talk to the user, sit with them, oh. see their, their behavior, their, their, their smiles, their sadness, their surprise. This is always the best, the best way to measure delight. Right. And also in terms of prioritization, because when you try to have an experience that's delightful and fun for millions of people, how do you like pick a feature of a over another because you say ah this is more fun or this is more like <laughs> i guess that, yes. that must be right yeah so in, in my area, so I'm owning the, the fun and delight program. So I'm, I'm trying to, so at least there is no competing priority when it comes to different features competing with each other. But the, the best, I mean, my my philosophy here is that I try to make sure that I look at the rich as the most important aspect of the prioritization. So if you, if you have one feature that will reach 10% of the others or 50% of the other feature, then the feature that will have higher reach should be prioritized. And then, of course, we iterate. We launch a feature and then we realize that it's not adapt, like it's not perfect or it's not well used. And then we change it. I mean, it's it's always open for failures, but we are just encouraged to fail fast. Uh, and that's more or less our, our guidance when it comes to prioritization. Great. Thank you so much. We had a couple more questions. I don't know, Axel, if you want to continue. Or no, please. Some, uh... No, please go ahead. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes left. So if people that are watching us right now, if you've got any questions, please drop them in the comment section and we'll try and pick them up as we go. And then, yeah, over to you. Go ahead. Yeah. Thanks. I was, uh, so I was super curious about 
Obviously, you have an amazing career track so far, working at all those amazing companies. I mean, Microsoft, Spotify, Google. I'm, I'm wondering what, what would you say were your main learnings in terms of product management, working at those companies, and maybe also in terms of product discovery, uh, yeah. because that's one topic we really like. And yeah, I don't know if you have any advice or any tips for people listening to us on those aspects. Sure. So from my side, having been exposed to several product and features with more or less success over time, of course, not all feature has been successful. And this has been, of course, great learning opportunity. But the most important learning so far is the importance of adaptability. It, work, it works like, of course, for discovery, but also for other phases. It's very important to adapt uh, both the product, but also you need to adapt your ways of working. So I want to talk about my learning throughout my career of the importance of product adaptability and ways of working adaptability. And for that, I'm going to share like a quick example. When I worked at Spotify a couple of years ago, I have been working on enabling a video for Spotify. So of course, everyone knows that Spotify is an audio company. The strategy was publicly announced as audio first, but it never been announced as audio only. So we have been looking at video as an opportunity to enhance video, to enhance audio. How do we make audio better through video? And over years, we have been treated video differently. So first we launched a documentary like the Metallica documentary on Spotify. And then we realized that that did not have the right reach. So we added video podcasts or we call it vodcast. So the, the video podcast on Spotify. And recently, like last year, it was announced like the clips on Spotify. So what I want to use with this example is that we never knew what's the last pass. What will be look? What will video look like at Spotify? What we only knew is the vision, the strategy, and that we want to use video to make audio better. And we have been adapting the feature. We even thrown away some of them, like the documentary on Spotify was just thrown away. I mean, to make it to, to keep to keep room for new features and, and, and new opportunities. So this is, of course, like throughout my career, when, when you go get exposed to so many adaptation and adaptability aspects, this is something that you gain in terms of experience. And I try to, of course, bring in in, in all step of my career. The second aspect is, of course, the adaptability of the ways of working. So when I start building a product, of course, it's very unlikely that we end the result or the, the end the, the work, the way how we ideated it. So it's uh, it's very surprising how it ends compared to how it started. And uh, my PM career, I in my PM career, I use it so many agile methods. Like I use it Scrum, I use it Kanban, I use it some sort of Scrumban or whatever we call. But the reason for those changes were always a need to adapt the ways of working for the team, for the feature, for the context, for the environment. So there is no perfect methods usually. There is I'm, I'm not a big advocate of saying like Scrum is the best or Kanban is the best. What I'm advocate about is like make sure that the, you you use the right methods the right ways of working that adapt the best for your for, for your team and your conditions and of course being also exposed to using these methods differently and in different environment bring like a, a new vision of how how can you apply that in a new environment 
So the only advice is, of course, like, uh, like uh, the famous quote, quote, of course, that said, like, adaptability is the simple secret of survival. So if you want to make sure that your products succeed and survive in such a competing environment, we just need to be extremely open to adapting it to the, to the context, to the environment, to the user need, and to the team, the engineer, to the technology. I mean, there are so many aspects that can, be, can trigger the adaptability need. Yeah, that's interesting because when you say adaptability, I understand that sometimes it's adaptability in means, but towards like a defined objective. So how do you keep the balance between some focus on your product vision and product mission so that everyone is aligned, but still adaptability so that, I mean, things change, pandemic happens. So how do you navigate through that balance? Yeah. Sure. I think we addressed it at some point. We said that always fall in love with the problem, not the solution. I mean, this is something that Marty Higgins is always like, of course, famous about saying in most of his talks. But th- this ve- relate to very much, Solan, to your question, because uh, yes, the environment will change. Yes, the solution will change. But the, 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 the vision should always be like our guidance or our North Star. And in best companies, the vision should not be narrow. It should be ambitious. It should be like aspirational. It should be big enough so that it should address different condition, different situation. So uh, by having always the right focus on the problem, on the challenge of our end user, and again, be open to change the the, the solution and the and the and the product, even if it's launched completely or like in a very early stage of the development, the mocks are set, in, like the code is written. If it does not provide the right value you're looking for, then it's it's very important to adapt it and change it to to, to what it has to be. I mean, I love the example of like building a car. It's very famous from the agile guru and lovers. It's very important not to, I mean, when you start, you probably, you guess that your user want the car, but the reality, maybe they just need a motorcycle. So how do you know? The only way of knowing that is by building it step by step, giving it to the user, trying it out, realize what they need, what they don't need and change your product. If you just jump into building a car and show it to the end user, they will pay you, they will give you, maybe they will not be happy about it and they will not get back to you again. Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting. I guess we've got a question here from Guillaume, really interesting question. I think you've talked to some of this previously, but maybe let's pick this up because I also think it's it's an interesting one. So Guillaume is saying, so you talked about how the Google product culture is really user-centered and not necessarily business-centered. I think you mentioned that it's user-centered first and then monetization, this kind of stuff yeah. will come later. You believe it will it will flow. How do you prioritize your top discovery topics in your roadmap? Yeah. So uh, I think it's always the same principle. So for it, then definitely there is a product for it. And of course, the product will will bring the business, will bring the viability and bring the money if you're looking for money. So so if you have different ideas, always think about or when you are in your discovery phase, of course, always think about what is the biggest problem? 
what is the biggest challenge, and also what is the problem that has a larger scope of users. So what's, what is the one that is causing frustration to more users? And by having that focus, you will realize that, I mean, that, that's how you prioritize your discovery. So focusing on the bigger problem, but also the problem that touches more users. And these are parameters and metrics that need to be taken into consideration when prioritizing discoveries. Thanks for that. And that was really insightful. I guess just before we wrap up, one of the things I'm really interested in is obviously you have had an amazing career and track record so far. I think one of the things I would be really keen in understanding is what are some of the things that you've learned and maybe, you know, you would have approached differently now that you, you know, you have the gift of hindsight. What are some of the you know, the, the, I want to say the secret weapons in terms of product practice you've, you've developed over time that now you find is, is really, is really useful for you. Yeah, this is a very good question because actually uh, nine years ago, when I moved from research to PM, I'm going to be very honest with you. It was one of my challenging period of life in my career because when I jumped into PM, I had no knowledge about what product management is. I had an electrical engineering degree, but I was mostly focusing on tech, lectures, etc. So I had to educate myself. And of course, I made mistakes. That's part of all like learning experience. The best weapons are definitely like reading books, others' experience. So by listening to other talks and, and getting yourself with the right person that you want to be surrounded with that will teach you is extremely important. So throughout my PM career, and especially recently, I start to value a lot mentoring and coaching. And, and to do so, you need to make sure that you have the right person for it. So identify the areas where you want to grow at. So if you want to grow in a specific PM side, then identify the person who will let you grow in that specific aspect. So very like recently, I've been reading a lot of PM books, reaching out to the authors, asking them a question about the, their books. I also like consolidating my knowledge by giving talks. So sometime internally after I see after I read a book, I make a presentation and share it with my PM colleagues just to Make sure that I understood it. I mean, this is mainly for it's, me because when you start presenting the work. Yeah. Exactly. You think that you know, but then when you start presenting, that's when you confirm that you know or not, when people start yeah. asking questions, etc. And, and and then I start to enlarge a little bit more than the internal talk. Like I gave, like I've been like invited in some conferences. I will be giving talks at PMF, Digital Lloyd this year. And, and the last new thing I started just recently is giving lectures. So I'm, I'm giving lectures at the PMF, INSEAD, Product Management Executive Program as well. So so these are just opportunity first to connect in a strategic way. So I highly value the strategic networking, but also opportunities for, for us as a PM to grow and to meet right person and, and to consolidate knowledge. One last thing I would like to mention here is that I'm a big, big passionate about building and contributing to the PM community. So, and, and at Google, I'm very fascinated and extremely happy that there are a lot of initiatives. So when it comes to PM, for example, in the PM community, there are already a lot of initiatives to join, but also we are even invited and welcomed to initiate new new event or new initiatives. So I only joined seven years ago and already driving a couple of PM initiatives in the Google PM community. And that's definitely something great that I have not seen in many companies before. Like leaders will trust you, will allow you to go and drive this initiative. 
even if you never show record before for doing that before. So it's always great to to step out of the comfort zone and take something new for growth. Just one thing. So if people want to reach out for whatever reason, just want to reach out to you, I guess they can do so through LinkedIn, right? Yeah. That's okay. the best way. Good luck with all the work you've got on the roadmap in the backlog at, at Google Meet. We hope everything you're going to do, obviously, is going to be successful. I guess that's it for us. Thank you. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time.